Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Estate planning attorney, Ifi Abekwe, and founder of Ifi Abekwe Law, believes that every woman deserves the opportunity to make good, informed decisions about issues that affect her financial future and well-being. Emboldening women and helping them plan to create generational wealth is Ifi's calling. She's also passionate about social justice and entrepreneurship. When she's not spending time with her remarkable husband and four spirited children, Ifi runs We Read Her Book Club, which focuses on the discussion of literature authored by women of color. We're excited to have Ifi here today on the Wealth of Women Lawyer podcast and looking forward to hearing her story and the message that she has for women. So Ifi, welcome. So I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Davina. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. So it took us a little while to get it together because we had to reschedule a couple of times. Uh, but I'm I'm so glad that you were accommodating and we're here today. I have been a fan of yours. We were just talking about your social media. And uh-huh. anybody who is not following you, you on Instagram needs to because you're so fun. Um, <laughs> YouTube channel and Instagram and <laughs> Facebook. Uh, you're everywhere. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. So tell us... Uh, a little bit so people can get to know you. Tell us your story and your journey to becoming an attorney and starting your own law firm. Was it kind of a straight line to that? Did you always envision you would grow up to be mogul that you are today? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. I am not a linear path taker by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, when I was growing up, I, I loved doing art and drawing and painting and that sort of thing. That's what I really excelled in in high school. Um, I found school pretty easy and I enjoyed learning. And um, I thought that I would go to school to become a studio art major, but I threw in (laughs) pre-med to make my parents happy. My dad was a pediatric radiologist and I thought, well, if I say I want to be a doctor, I know that they'll be excited about that, but I really love art. So I thought I could do both. And um, it turns out that that was not welcome for my Nigerian immigrant parents funding my college <laughs> education, because I think they thought <laughs> that I would love art too much and drop the doctor part. Yeah. And so I, I ended up going to school pre-med. And the pivotal point in my shift came after 9-11. I remember... I had gotten into all of the classes at the University of Texas. That's where I went to undergrad and law school. Um, And I was in organic chemistry with Dr. Iverson and I was taking genetics and I was, you know, about to take the MCAT and do all the things to become a doctor. And I remember 9-11 happened and I was sitting in class and I had a seat, but there were people who were trying to get into the class and it was a 500 person class and it was all these people taking notes and really into organic chemistry. And I was like, "Ugh, I hate this. (laughs) I don't care anything about what's being taught. And this was literally week one. So as you can Uh, probably imagine right there, (laughs) this is not working for me. And um, I remember telling my parents, I don't want to be pre-med anymore. I don't want to be a doctor. I actually don't even like hospitals. I just kind of said that because 
I knew you would like that. Yeah. And so I ended up having this soul searching period of college where I changed my major a couple of times. I knew I had to get out in four years because, you know, fortunately my parents did pay for college, but I wasn't going to be a professional student. And I ended up going through creative advertising, which really suffered after the um, economy took a downturn after 2011. Um, excuse me, 20, 2001. I'm really dating myself now. Um, and so I ended up having a conversation. I remember it clearly with my older brother trying to figure out what am I going to do? What will I major in? What can I do now that I don't have this stock answer that makes people happy? Right. And he, he told me, he's like, look, you love to argue. Why don't you become a judge? And I've told this story so many times because that literally is it. I <laughs> remember looking up what it took to become a judge because I wasn't even sure that I knew that you had to be a lawyer before a judge. That's how much I was not pursuing law. And that sounds so <laughs> silly now, but truthfully, it was not my path. I didn't have role models who were lawyers. I never wanted to be on the bench or a justice in the Supreme Court. You know, I never had a pivotal legal moment in my career. Right. And I looked it up and it was just the LSAT with no prerequisites. And I thought, wow, medical school, you have to take a lot of classes before you can take the exam. But this LSAT thing, sure, I'll take it. And right. that's it. And I became a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it's so unremarkable. <laughs> I know. No, actually, I think that's really, uh, I think that's interesting because I, I do, you know, having had this conversation with many women lawyers and women law firm owners, it is always fascinating to see how people wind up where they are because oftentimes we don't wind up in the direction we thought we were going to go. I mean, I had a prior career before I became an attorney and I had an opportunity to change my career because what I was in, I had sort of gotten to by default, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was debating about different options. And I remember I have a cousin who's an attorney and he absolutely loves it. And so wow. he had a conversation with me. And by the time we were done, I was sold. All right, great, right? Of course, I didn't realize, you know, he's a professional persuader. And <laughs> I, I wound up going to law school for that reason. So, you know, sometimes it's, that's just the way it works out. And I do not regret the education and the experience at all. I mean, wow, how yes. all that I've learned, it's been incredible. And the skills that you develop uh, going to law school and then becoming a lawyer, right? Absolutely. And the credibility you get automatically when you say you're a lawyer, it opens Absolutely. a lot of doors. And exactly. um, I always think, there's so many ways to skin a cat. I feel like people have their stories uh, about how they ended up becoming a lawyer. And it really doesn't follow any one path. It doesn't follow any one model. There are right. so many people who have come into the law various ways. Right, exactly. So tell us what made you decide to start your own practice. Did you work someplace else first? Yes. So I ended up going to law school. I wrote my essay on wanting to do education law. Um, my mom was a teacher and high school science teacher before she retired. My dad taught medicine at the University of Houston Medical School, University of Texas at Houston, I believe, um, mm -hmm. in addition to other schools. And so I, I knew I didn't want to teach because I don't really want to be in a classroom of any sort. But I did feel like I had an affinity towards 
educating. And so for the first 11 years of my life, I worked for a, um, a school union for a year. And then for 10 years, I worked for a large education nonprofit and did school law. I used to help train school board members and superintendents and school business people on various changes in the law. And I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also got to be in-house in, in the same organization for a few years. Um, and towards the end of it, um, I had just had my third child. Uh, I had just hit my 10 year, uh, milestone and I got fired. <laughs> and so oh, no. that was like a really big blow to my ego, just having to go through that. I was just so embarrassed and I was ready to leave the law. Truly. I just, I had never felt so exposed and I had all these young kids and the loss of income. And it was just, it was a lot. Um, And so I just ended up taking a break because I actually had a a pretty nice severance, which did not require me to start working immediately. And in that time, I did a lot of soul searching. And one of the things I was going to do, I was going to start doing HR consulting and helping women, you know, come up with a business plan, something not fully um, away from legal, but not oh. law, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and I would do all these little test studies, case studies, because I was like, I need to build a website and I have to have case studies. I need to do the SHRM. I'm going to go into HR. I would meet with people and ask them about their experiences. And my husband, one day he, he told me, he's like, well, why don't you just try and get a client on your own? And I just thought, no, I'm not doing law anymore. I've already told you. I'm, and people would <laughs> ask me all the time, my case studies, they're like, this is so great. Can you help with the contract as well? And, I'm, and I, I had done contracts for years. And I said, no, 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 I don't do contracts. I do the business consulting with like the credibility that being a lawyer affords you, right? Oh, and I ended up just trying to prove my husband wrong. And I got a, cl- a client. I got paid. I had that dopamine hit and I thought I want to do that again. <laughs> so I've probably cool. <laughs> been chasing that high for a while and it was yeah. just so thrilling. That That's fantastic. Yeah, I yeah. totally relate to what you're saying because, you know, it, it was confusing when I first started trying to figure out what I wanted to do after I split up with my partner and I started my firm again, you know, created a virtual firm. And then I was like, Mm -hmm. it still is just not soul satisfying for me and what I want to do. And, and for me, I found, uh, you know, being a law firm growth strategist, combining that marketing experience and being a business coach for other companies was was a great fit for me, but it took a while. That journey takes a while and you really have to like go through a lot of, you know, a thought process in your mind, you know, what do I want to do? And then you sort of realize, you know what, this is the skill set I have in my bag of tricks. And I can be more than that. I can be, you know, many, as many different things as I want to be, right? And when you take exactly. the limits off yourself, you can do whatever. So I want to talk with you specifically. What I find, what I, what I love about um, your message is you're really focused on helping women be intentional, uh, have agency over their financial decisions, and really create that generational wealth. And right. so talk to me about how you got clear on that message. 
Right. And I think some so much of this is in that dream phase of building a business. I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of lawyers spend enough time ideating and mm-hmm. envisioning what the foundation of their business will be. And so I remember there's a book, it was written by Ali Lozano, and I remember buying it on Amazon and it's called something like be the CEO of your law firm. And I love any kind of work that involves answering questions and, you know, filling out a workbook and her, her book did that. And so what I ended up doing was going through this book and thinking about, okay, who's my ideal client? What are her struggles? Um, What is she wanting to achieve with estate planning? And really trying to put myself into that avatar. Mind you, I didn't have clients just out the door, right? Right, (laughs) This is really foundational. I'm like, whenever I decide what this is going to be, I'm going to do this. And I also have a a dear friend um, and she helped me. She's a marketing professional. She one Saturday, I went over to her apartment in Austin and she said, look, we're going to map out your mission, your vision, your values. We're going to start this process. And so we spent this entire uh, half day just going through and starting the foundational process. And then we would meet and refine and refine, and refine. And the whole time I just love exercises like that. Mm-hmm. But what ended, what ended up happening is that I was able to distill who I wanted to serve. And then I looked around and I realized like, okay, Am I the only one saying that I specifically work with women, not to the um, (laughs) exclusion of other genders, but because I just want to be bold about it? Mm -hmm. And I called Texas Ethics for Lawyers, and I didn't even know if you could do that. (laughs) And I've seen um, some divorce lawyers do that, you know, and I thought, no, I've never seen an estate plan. They always talk about families, right? Or just the generic person. And I thought, well, let me ask. I asked, there is absolutely no prohibition on it. And honestly, just being clear about who I serve has attracted that type of person to me. And I just had to take that bold step and say, okay, I am a law firm and I want to empower women. You know, that's very rah-rah, but I want them to have their agency, not only for financial decisions, but for their physical bodies, you know, and they need to be able to make decisions if they don't have capacity. How can I rebrand this message of doom and gloom and turn it into an emboldening, empowering, um, activating message? And that's just what I decided to do. And it has worked. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that you say uh, this message of doom and gloom and turn it into an emboldening, you know, empowering message, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is what so many people think that the general public sort of thinks about estate planning. Estate planning, we're talking about, you know, planning for your death. And Mm -hmm. probate, we're talking about dealing with the death of of a loved one. And so that's been the challenge for estate planning attorneys to position themselves and market because they're like, gosh, nobody wants to face this or deal with it until it happens. Right. And so you really were looking for a way to say, let's make this something that people get excited about because they're seeing it as a piece of their wealth building. And yes, right. 
right? Yes. People get so excited about starting a business or getting their financial portfolio together at a brokerage. And it's very empowering to be a woman who owns a business and who works and is taking care of children and all the sort of variations of, of that. But when it comes to taking that charge with estate planning, I just think estate planners have done such a horrible job of, of branding. <laughs> First of all, it's been very exclusive, right? Here I am. I'm a unicorn in estate planning. I'm a black woman in Texas estate planner. I know of a couple more, and I do mean a couple who solely do estate planning, right? And we are very few. We are the unicorns of the practice area. And then when you stretch it out, it's a lot of old white people working with old white money being passed down from generations. That's truly the system as we inherited it from the British, you know, it's been around for a long time. It wasn't built for people who look like me. It certainly was not built for women, especially when you think about women not being able to have their own credit card until a a couple of decades ago and without having in the seventies. Right. And without having a a man to help sign for them or buy a home and all these things. So when you think about estate planning was not designed for so many groups of people, women, people of color, right? And so there isn't a legacy of doing it. And the ones who have, they are truly anomalies. And um, and that's just one of those things that I, I think that estate planning as a, as a field of law has really missed the ball and the opportunity to educate the entire population. It's good for business. I'll tell you that. Even if you don't feel morally, um, you know, convicted, it is good for business to be more inclusive. And so that's just been one of the things that really um, resonated with me when I entered this practice area. I was like, oh, I really, I don't have mentors and, you know, I'm going to have to go find this stuff. And so it's been a journey for sure. It's been a journey. Right, right. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about general generational wealth, you know, and mm-hmm. particularly among uh, people of color, you'll yes. see a lot of this discussion happening. Like, how can we create generational wealth? Because we've seen and heard so many um, stories about how land has been lost. Yes, oh from my generation gosh. to generation, or more, you know, more accurately, stolen. Um, yes, from generation to generation because people of color, black people not having access or, or right. comfort with the legal system. And so yes. it's a huge issue in creating generational wealth that now is the time that that change can begin yeah. and start happening for people. Um, Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, Black people were the wealth that was passed on intergenerationally for many hundreds of years in this country. You know, a lot of the wealth in this country is built on the backs of um, enslaved people who were free laborers. Right. Right. And there was value in that. So they passed that on to their sons and then they passed that on, you know, generationally and they could sell people and use them as value building. Right. So we have a lot of families that are around us right now um, that shouldn't really just rest on their laurels thinking they just worked so hard. They built so much on the backs of 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 black people who were captured and brought here and enslaved. And so I always say that part. Um, it's not that for some reason we just can't 
you know, get right. We did not have access to courts. We did not have access to justice. I mean, you can still argue that that's not the case. But when you start talking about all of the um, barriers that have been structurally put in place to remove land from Black people, I mean, even the percentage of land that Black people own has severely diminished over the last 100 years, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, just practically, you should think, oh, shouldn't it be growing because more people have access now? Well, no. And there are so many reasons for that. A lot of that has to do with systemic racism and policies, redlining, all kinds of um, property tax hikes. And so I could go into all of that, but you can mm-hmm. uh, you can read so many books that talk about it, like Cast by uh, Isabel Wilkerson or The Color of Law, where it um, he talks about redlining and um, how housing has caused so much of our divide too. Um, multi-layered problem. But when I think about that, I always tell people, don't feel ashamed if you don't have a legacy of doing it. It wasn't built for you. So right. that's a starting point. And a lot of people, I think the, the percentage of uh, Americans who do not have even a will is about 70%. I think there was a, a caring.com study or an AARP study that showed it's a high number. When it comes to African Americans and um, Latinx community, um, it's even higher. And so we don't have a tradition of doing this because for multiple reasons. But another thing people have really bought onto all I need is a will. Right? right? Get a will and you'll be good. And that's really not sufficient um, for a lot of people who own land or even if it's a couple of acres in the middle of East Texas that nobody cares about. That's an asset, right? <laughs> land is how you grow wealth in throughout the world. Ownership having a home, things like that. And so um, part of what I do and part of what a lot of my colleagues who look like me do, we have to educate and and let people know, you know, we always have this room. I'm in Clubhouse. I, I started a club called the Black Trust Fund Kids, where we're trying to normalize Black people having trust funds um, with my friend Portia Wood. And we always talk about don't sell Big Mama's house right? Um, Sometimes you have one asset in the family and that matriarch or patriarch is going to die, but it's going to be split up between, you know, six heirs or more, or however many, even if it's just two heirs. And how do you, how do you separate that? Right. And there are other ways that you can, you can plan for those things. If you have a cultural competency and know, you know, this person has special needs and if they inherit that could knock them out of getting their Medicaid or SSI benefits and having these conversations and say, yes, maybe balance sheet, they don't look wealthy, but we need to preserve this asset for this family in a more radical way. And that's the kind of approach that I like to, to take in that and, and also encourage other lawyers to, Enter the field of estate planning. Um, it, it can't just be black people helping black people or, you know, white people helping white people only, right? It's more of like a call to action um, in order to use uh, the education to further certain communities who have negatively been affected historically. Right, right. So how are you, what are you doing to sort of get your message out, especially to people who you know, have never really felt that they had access to our legal system and, uh, you know, whether that's uh, property ownership or yes. passing along assets or whatever. 
what are you doing to, well, how do you feel like you're uh, approaching it to not only just plant the seed, but then also uh, improve that comfort level? Uh, what kind yeah. of things do you say and do? So I have a, a multi-layered approach, like a good bean dip. Um, I, I, I talk to people, just regular people um, about the importance of estate planning. And I look at it as just planting a seed, right? Where I'm just getting the message out there. Sometimes I'm watering because they've gotten that message elsewhere. Sometimes I'm the harvest if they hire me as their lawyer, which is going to be a very small percentage compared to all the people I get the message out to. And so I do that um, in various ways. You know, my social media, I speak often on estate planning, whether it's at a church or whether it's at a webinar or if someone invites me, I go because I know someone needs to hear the message. Right. Mm-hmm. And not only black people, but people need to hear this message. And then when it comes to the legal community, I really I, I just I love being on podcasts and things like this so that I can share that message with other attorneys and kind of say, hey, guys, you got to wake up. There's a whole demographic of people that we're not serving in this area. So either if you're a law student and looking for an area, this is a great one. And here are some of the issues. And then the third thing I've been doing of late, I am writing a book on wealth. I'm writing a book on estate planning for anyone who, you know, basically isn't an old rich white guy, right? Uh That's the stereotype. You've got to be very rich. It's not for people who look like us. It's not for women. I need to have kids before I do that all these excuses. And so I really want to address those and get a resource out that I can stand behind that I feel like would spread the message even further by really writing about it in a layman's terms so that people can use that and go use it to hire an attorney or use it to ask good questions about protecting their wealth. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And I love the idea of a book. I have a book that's that I'm rolling out in the next couple of weeks. So I'm, I, I'm excited to, to, to read yours when it comes out. Um, Absolutely. The, uh, when you were, you were talking about women and, you know, that's a name of my business being wealthy woman lawyer, you know, <laughs> that my focus is on women too and helping yes. women to develop wealth. And when it comes to estate planning, I think in particular, you know, we think about single women, and if you are a, a single woman and you're developing, you're becoming the boss, you know, and you're growing this business and you're developing a business, you need a plan because yes. that's not going to be something that you like automatically it's going to go to my kids or whatever. Exactly. If you don't have children. I, for me, um, I'm married, but we don't have children. And so we need a plan for what happens. I don't know that our our bulldog is going to know exactly what to do with the money if we leave it to her. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so there are a lot of women out there that are really becoming the breadwinners and oh, ones who are really taking care of their families and families are looking different. I mean, we're getting, right. we're, we're not getting the traditional family, which I think is wonderful. We're seeing families of all shapes and sizes. Yes. And, you know, same sex couples and, you know, all kinds of different looks to a family. Right. And, and oftentimes we need to really, uh, we're the ones who really need to be thinking about our, how we're going to pass on our legacy and um, our property and our wealth. 
to uh, to others because it might be a little more complicated if your family look doesn't look like the traditional family. Absolutely. And honestly, that's why having some sort of cultural competency really mm-hmm. matters. You know, uh, I was talking to someone and um, they were talking about how their CPA asked them why they send a certain sum of money out every month, right? And how if they cut that out, they would be able to grow their portfolio in this other way. It's just looking at the numbers. What is this expense and why are you sending it out? And honestly, it was because this person was sending it out to take care of her mother (laughs) and that's mom's on the payroll. You know, that's how she supplements her, her care. And it doesn't make sense financially. And obviously like if everything was just about money, yeah, you just cut that out and put it here and you could make this much. And, but there's got to be a cultural competency where someone says that's for my mom. And you're like, got it right. Not why. Right. Yeah. And so, and that's one of those things when you talk about non traditional, whatever traditional ever was, right? right Family. Exactly. And how estate planning has to change and, and not be so caught up on, oh, well, this is how you talk to the woman mostly because she's emotional and all the stuff that I've heard. I, you would not be, I mean, you would not be shocked, but it's. I was an estate planning appalling. attorney, so I know, <laughs> you know. Appalling. Yes, yes. And yes. so all these archaic um, ways that it was practiced in the past, and you're like, that's not relevant today. What do you mean I can't make a decision? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, when I think about women, and how we live longer and we are going to have uh, inherit the finances. A lot of us of people who pass away and some may never get married or have you may have a different family structure, whatever. It's even more important to not only take care of your finances, but make sure that you have your healthcare decisions taken care of. That's just a part of estate planning a lot of people overlook. And so it's one of those things where it's like, do you have any medical directives, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how are you preserving your agency and things like that? And and just having those conversations and normalizing them, not only, okay, what's your business succession plan? Okay, what do you want? Do you want to set up a trust? Who do you want your beneficiary to be? Well, let's talk about your health. What kind of health outcomes are you for, right? How? What medical interventions would you want? Have you prepaid for your funeral? Um, do you want to be cremated? Are you donating your body to science? What about your organs? These are conversations that I have weekly uh-huh. with clients, you know, and and those, and, are, and those are tough conversations to have yes. because, because, you know, as we started out this conversation, you know, nobody, nobody likes to think about those things, but it's right. so important. And I think there's such a sense of satisfaction. I, I agree. Once you have dealt with these issues, it feels like a big thing to mark off your checklist and go, you know. Uh, I've I've made some very important decisions and I've informed the people that, you know, need to know and it matters most. And then, of course, as time goes along, we need to revisit that because things can shift in our life and people can move in and out of our lives for, you know, whatever reason. And we always need to be looking back and addressing addressing that as well. Absolutely. um, I want to, uh, before the hour gets away from us, I want to talk about your book club because I find oh, that yes. interesting. We read her uh, book club. So tell me what that is about and what caused you to start this book club. 
Yes, I love talking about my book club. I was wondering if I should take that off my bio if people are like, no, okay, no, no, no. So I love random. <laughs> As a reader myself, I, I think it's fabulous. So Yes. So I didn't know if I should put that or talk about how I am obsessed with the uh, plants. So I thought, let me do the book this time around. Yeah, I started talking about both. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I started the book club, I believe it was um, June or July of 2019. And I posted it on Facebook and asked if anybody would be interested in joining a book club. Because I'm, I would always ask people, what are you reading? and try and build my list and put my books on hold at the Austin Public Library because it's a very active library system. You can't just get a book. You got to get in line. Um, and I don't tend to buy a lot of books because I don't, I don't keep books. You know, I just read them and move on. And so uh, I had so many people who were interested. And I wrote out what type of book club it was. This is not a wine club. This is not a social club. We will discuss the book. And so if you are not up to discussing, please do not join the book club. And so I had all these parameters in place to discourage people. (laughs) They're rules, people, rules. These are rule (laughs) followers. And so it involved all these, finally, when we set up the group, it involved all these women in Austin um, from different walks of life. Some people who had gone to church with me and then a lot of lawyers, of course, and friends from different parts of my life. So I was the the glue that knew everybody pretty much in the group because they were all a friend of mine on Facebook. And so we met in person, of course, back in the before times, we would go to La Madeline at 7 p.m. and everybody would get dinner and a couple of drinks and we would just talk about the book. We'd assign it to someone and we'd pick the books for the year. And that went on, you know, without a problem until COVID hit, right? And then you could kind of see it was getting harder to figure out what what's going on how are we meeting where's our childcare? we're always at home this is so awful well at the beginning of this year i, I decided okay we're going to be back on it book club is opening up new spots if you have tired of this then please leave <laughs> i'm picking all the i'm picking all the books and so we we're gonna have them spelled out for the calendar i'm sending out a zoom invite for the entire year you can, you know, there's no excuse for not knowing what's coming up and, and then just keeping our Facebook group going. And so that's what we did. And I solicited titles. The only requirements are that it has to be written by a woman, preferably a woman of color. And so I think this year we're reading one book by uh, a, a white woman. And then I think it's Hamnet. And then the rest of the books are by Asian American women, African American women, Latin American women, um, any kind of other writer who would not necessarily get that spotlight. And we get really good discussions and meet once a month and just talk about it. And it's all on Zoom. So we made the book club pretty much international, although I don't think we have any members outside of the US, but we have them all over the country now. And that has just been We've had two meetings this year already, and it's just so awesome just to that sit and so fun. Oh, it's so good. And just to have rich conversations about literature. I mean, come on. It doesn't yeah. really get much better. Well, and I and that really if like I'm surrounded by books. I I, <laughs> I grew up going to the library, but now I'm the kind of person who's buying them and you know, then they're all in my 
Audible and my Kindle, and then physically all around me. If you, oh my gosh, I've got bookshelves full of books, everything, and of course, you know, very little time to, to. I'm I'm squeezing in reading, which is why Audible gets so much use. Um, but uh, so there would be. This sounds like a really great way to motivate yourself to really read something for pleasure and enjoyment and for the intellectual stimulation of it definitely because because then you're on a deadline and you know you're going to be called upon to discuss it and we already know there are rules you got there are rules that i set right right (laughs) how fabulous that sounds great um and what is your criteria you you talked about the author being the criteria is there any other criteria anything that you're looking for when you're picking the books other topics or whatever Well, we, I mean, I think that the first year and a half, we definitely did fiction, Mm -hmm. but now we are delving into some nonfiction, which is fascinating. Um, And just, just for example, I'll tell you the three books we've read this year. The first one is more of an essay because (laughs) we started late and I just wanted people to feel like they would get a win. And Mm -hmm. it's, we should all um, be feminists by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And it's a book, the tiny little cute book that makes the argument that we all must be feminists. It's so good. Wow. I um, just the title alone. I've yes. heard of it, but I've never read it. So that sounds that's I think that's where Rachel Rogers got her title for We Should All Be Millionaires. And so ah, I, there you go. There you go. It's okay. a nod to that. Um, and then the last book we read last month was actually young adult fiction. So just to show you the variety. And that was The um, the House on Mango Street mm-hmm. by Sandra Cisneros. Oh, is that a judge? I, I don't know what. Yeah, I think her name is Sandra Cisneros. Um, forgive me if that is the wrong name, but I do know last name is Cisneros. And that was just a coming of age story about basically a tween to early teen girl uh, right. growing up in this fictional on this fictional street in Chicago. Fabulous. Now we are reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And for those who are listening, if you only read one book this year, it has to be Cast. It yeah. is a revelation. I mean, truly, I I don't know the last time I, I've been thinking, when can I get a quiet moment away from these kids to, to continue? You know, <laughs> it's so engrossing. It's so good. It really talks about uh, America's caste system and then compares it to Nazi Germany as well as um, South Africa and in some respects, wow. um, the Indian caste system, which is one of the oldest caste system. Right. It's it's just, I mean, we talk about race and we talk about class, but we really need to talk about caste. And I don't know why I've never realized that that's what's going on here, but it actually explains a lot and Mm -hmm. also helps understand the perspective of so many of the disparate groups, which are categorized by race now, which is a social construct. It's a man-made construct. It makes no sense. And there's so many well-researched, um, um, well-researched, just, uh, it's just so good. I think she took about a decade to write it. It's that kind of writing. Oh, um, wow, I love that. Yeah, yeah so I've just got that deep dive. My, and I'm definitely going to get that as soon as we get off this call. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you know, that's, that's so interesting because I, you know, when you talk about the, the caste system in India, a lot of people are familiar with that. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference between a culture like this and a culture like that is that everybody's aware, everybody knows it, everybody's aware of it there. 
And here, people don't have the realization that that's what it is. That's what's happening. And I think that's, you know, we look at that society and go, oh, wow, no, we don't have that here. And that's not the lived experience of many people who live here, right? Yes. And and ours, dare I say, is one of the worst historically, I mean, in the world. And Nazi Germany learned from the U.S. caste system. It's just so much. But um, yeah, that's just an example of just the variety. We read anything and everything. And I think the next book is the Hamnet book, which I don't even know what it's about, but somebody recommended it in the group. And I'm like, yay, (laughs) that's next. And so some of it is really fun because when other people suggest books, we just put it in the rotation and then you get to read a book that somebody really has on their list that if they could put one book on their list on our list, that's the book, you know, oh, this is going to be a good one. So, yeah. Yeah. Have you read Snowflower and the Fan? Yes, I have. Is it by, um, is it by Lisa C? Yes. Lisa yes. C. Lisa yes. C. I've read some of her other books, but that was my, my favorite by her. And it was, of course, you know, if you, know about foot binding or have heard about foot binding. Yes. Oh, yes. But the to, image. But, but to, and she's so, it's very graphic and she describes yes. it. But what's so fascinating to me is like we here in this country, we just think we've been around forever, right? And then you look right. at a culture like that and you go like, these people would, were doing this for, you know, 5,000 I mean, years. Millennia. Uh, how, yes. Like, how long these women have been binding their feet. And it wasn't until like 1949 or something that the last of it sort of died out. And right. And it just, and stunning, like to think as a woman, what that would be like. Absolutely. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I love your book club idea. That's, that's just awesome. <laughs> so Thank I guess we could you. probably have another podcast just talking about the book club. Well, um, I personally would love to talk to you about Cass when you're done, because I feel like you will have to debrief with somebody. So I am yeah. offering myself oh, <laughs> for that. Awesome. awesome. Well, we will, it's a date then. We will definitely yes. do that. Um, and, and let's talk about, I know this is, uh, I'm not doing this because you're a woman necessarily, but you, when you say have four spirited children, I just, as someone who does not have children, I'm oh always admiring women who have uh, a lot of children and really wonderful, successful careers and how they juggle, how they wind up sort of juggling. I know this sounds so sexist. It, your husband and you, how you wind up juggling poor kids right. and careers, you know what I mean? Because what are the ages of your kids? Currently, they, as of this recording, are seven, five, three, and one. Wow. So you've got youngins. Yes. Little. Very. But, so, and then, and because I know this is a big issue for, unfortunately, so many women have left the workplace in this last year or put yes. their careers on hold because they had to, you know, find a way to deal with children being at home, especially when they have little ones because of COVID. And of course, that's as a feminist like I am, that's distressing that so many women have left the workplace. There's some you know, number like 85% or something like that. And how, so I'm always asking for our listeners, so many of whom are also parents of young children, what kinds of tips or suggestions or how have you sort of navigated this with your kids? Yeah, navigated all of it, right? So I'll give you a story. My youngest is one, but she just turned one. Mm -hmm. Um, She actually was born a week before Austin had its lockdown. Mm-hmm. And so at that point wow. I had a kind 
a kindergartner and two littles who were in preschool and everything was shut down and everybody was home indefinitely because that's when they ended school was mid-March spring break last year up no more school (laughs) and if you think about the the eternal spring break the (laughs) the longest spring break ever right or or more than five months spring break and so that was not something I had planned for you know um this time last year, it was all coming together. I had a one week or so old, two, uh, four-year-old and a six-year-old with nothing to do, no parks to go to. Thankfully, we have great weather in Austin and we had a little playscape in our backyard and we finally got a trampoline, which was very hard to come by. And we and made it <laughs> so imperative to have one. And we didn't know what this disease was, right? Um, What this virus could do, this pandemic, what does it even mean? And you're seeing all the people in Italy. And I thought, wow, this is not what I thought I would be doing this year. I had spent so much time replacing myself by hiring an attorney to be me for estate planning purposes, because I wanted to have a maternity leave with this baby. I just wanted to have three months off. And so I had spent so much of the beginning of the year interviewing, hiring, finding someone to help me hire an attorney so that I could teach her enough that she could do the legal work in the the way that I did. And I was so proud of myself because I was like, yes, all I have to do two weeks after this is some consults. Let's just keep this low overhead. I don't really, you know, want to do much more than keep my firm open because a lot of people told me, well, just close it for three months. Right. And I was just like, what the heck is that? I've been working hard. I'm right. not going to close it. And you think about all the ways women leave the workforce, the pregnancy you could leave, pandemic, no childcare you could leave, um, your unavailability due to no childcare, you could be fired or you could be underemployed. Um, it's just an uphill battle from people who are working in, you know, just gigs and people who are working, you know, retail all the way up to quote unquote professionals, right? Doctors, lawyers, how do you go to work when the burden of childcare is on women or even taking care of elderly parents, right? Right. It's already almost impossible. In my situation, because I had done things like that, I was able to continue and re just figure out how we wanted to do our thing differently, right? In our house. My husband works for himself, and then we set up a plan. After my maternity leave, he works as an academic coach. So he does SAT, um, ACT tutoring, and also helps kids with um, all kinds of smart people stuff. And so <laughs> his, his day starts later. And my day, I take advantage of up till 2 p.m., because mm-hmm. that's when we kind of do our, our parent switch. <laughs> yeah. And we started doing that because we didn't have a nanny. Because at that point, honestly, you didn't even know how this virus spread. It, I don't know if you remember how frantic people were right. um, yeah. and panicked yeah. about who could come in their home, whether to go to grocery stores or have it delivered, to spray it with Lysol. And I have all these kids and a newborn and I'm like, we are not going anywhere. And right, we just started, right. we started doing that and it really worked. And it's really a partnership um, mm-hmm. in that regard. My husband is amazing. My kids, for the most part, 75% of them are extrovert. Maybe have one ambivert, but she's kind of introverted. But it's a, it's a very spirited house. It's wow, not that's what a you place. mean when you say spirited. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> it's a 
party all the time. <laughs> it's a party all the time. And the only reason it's quiet for this recording is I, I told my first grader who's in virtual school, you are not allowed to speak. You cannot turn on the TV. <laughs> you have to be quiet. <laughs> and then we just put the, the little threes, uh, the three little ones back in preschool last week mm -hmm. um, at the beginning of March uh, of 2021. And that has been after a year of being at home. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that I can't even imagine. I so feel for all of the parents out there of, of you know, especially the young children who can't kind of, you know, you can't just say, entertain yourself for a few minutes while I do this or do that. I mean, yes, little, little kids are following you to the bathroom, you know, like, oh, so, for sure. They so definitely are. <laughs> I have, my heart has really gone out to you guys uh, this year and all that. So um, and I've been amazed and inspired by the way people have powered through. And so many women attorneys, uh, women law firm owners have kept their businesses going. And, and usually it's because it's teamwork with the other parent, you know. So I appreciate you sharing that. I just had yes. to ask when I saw in there four kids. I'm like, oh, gosh, I wonder how old they were. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So tell us how we can connect with you on social media, how we can find out more information about you and your law firm. Yes. Well, I am probably the most active social media wise on Instagram. And mm -hmm. my handle is the just in case lawyer. Mm -hmm. You can also find me on my website, willsintexas.com. And um, I also have a personal website, which is just my name, Ifia Beckway. And then I'm everywhere else, Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not on TikTok, <laughs> but oh, I, I, I just am on all, if you Google me, I will come up. So I will give you all that information so that you can put it in your show notes. Absolutely. Fabulous. Wonderful. I would love to be able to share it. And we also might want to uh, share a link of some of the books you recommended. So oh, absolutely. that information and we'll include that in the show notes too for those people that want to read it. Yeah. Uh, recommendations because they all sound like really great books. So thanks so much for being here. Ify. I have enjoyed it like a thousand percent. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the league in the coming year, including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now I've only shared with my private one-to-one -one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. League is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. -E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.